Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Three, two... One, let's go. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Michael Hunstead, Head of Quantitative Strategies at Northern Trust. Our conversation centers around the four key trends Michael is seeing among institutional allocators in the factor space today. These trends are, one, the adoption of factors to manage concentration risk in market cap weighted benchmarks, two, a move from single to multi-factor implementations, three, using factors to de-risk equity exposure, and four, a tactical tilt towards value. But Michael isn't afraid to get in the weeds. He discusses the risks of unintended exposures at length, and at one point even explains the importance of matching decay speeds of different factor signals within multi-factor implementations. For those interested both in the macro trends and the micro details of factor investing, this is not one to miss. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Hunstead. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here talking all things factor investing, particularly from an institutional perspective. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Excellent. Well, thank you, Corey. Appreciate it. I'd love to start for maybe some members of my audience and listeners that haven't perhaps heard of you before, just start with your background and how you got to where you are today as sort of head of the quantitative strategies group at Northern Trust. Yeah, I've been a quant investor for 20 years. I've been with Northern Trust for eight years. Currently, my role, I run a group that manages about $22 billion in assets across both equity and fixed income, both factor-based. Also, the FlexShares platform, ETF platform at Northern Trust has a lot of our strategies as part of their lineup. We have clients all over the world from retail to the absolute largest end of the institutional spectrum. Before Northern Trust, I was at a large insurance company doing asset allocation work. And this is really where I became a factor investor and that I saw the power of long-term factor exposures in that work. I also did stints in hedge fund and the algorithmic trading world. I've got a PhD in mathematics, um, master's in econometrics, MBA in quant finance. I've done a lot of writing over the years, published about 70 papers, most of them on factor investing. A well-educated man. <laughs> Try to be. Factor investing is something that really seems to have taken off, at least in the 
retail space in the 2012-2013 period, first under sort of the name of smart beta, and then really accelerated and more pure factor adoption. But it did start predominantly in the institutional space. And I know that's a huge area of focus for you today. I would love to know what are the trends that you're seeing today in the institutional space with respect to either the continued adoption or the use of factors today? I would say that we are at an all-time high in terms of adoption and use of factor strategies. A lot of our institutional clients are really becoming fearful of traditional cap-weighted benchmarks. They're fearful of the concentration at the very top end of the spectrum in those benchmarks. They're moving to well-diversified, multi-factor implementations. That's one major trend. Another major trend is using factors to de-risk the equity portfolio. Lots and lots of volatility in the equity market today. Traditionally, what you would do to reduce risk in your portfolio is allocate away from equities into fixed income. Given where yields are at, the opportunity cost of doing that is quite high. A lot of our clients are kind of de-risking their equity portfolios in place. So factors like quality and low volatility becoming very popular. And last, but certainly not least, and it deserves a mention, a lot of our clients are actually going very heavy into value these days. I suspect you have some questions about that, but I think it's a good time. A lot of our clients feel like it's a good time to enter that value space. So I certainly want to touch on all of these points throughout our conversation. But yeah, let's let's start with the value point. Last thing you mentioned, I mean, it is tough to talk factors today without just talking about the struggles of value. Certainly highly implementation dependent, whether you're using the traditional price to book Fama French method that seems to have stopped working in 2007 or more nuanced methods that seem to keep working until about 2016, 2017. From there, it seems like everyone has had a rough go for the last two years. I'd love to know what's your take on the situation? What is, I mean, obviously hard to identify a cause, but would love to know if you have a hypothesis as to what's gone wrong with value. Yeah. So, I mean, broadly at play here is the question, is this a structural break in value? Is something materially changed about the market? Or are we simply at the bottom of a cycle? And we have to be very, very careful about declaring a structural break in anything. Every time we do this, historically, we tend to be wrong in that assessment. So if you rewind to, let's say, 1999, you had a similar set of circumstances with value. You had most of the return of the market was concentrated in the internet stocks, these sort of new economy stocks. You had value underperforming for seven consecutive years leading up to that tech bubble burst. At that time, if you were an investor at that time, if you look back historically at any of the articles, press releases or press pieces that talked about value, they're all talking about a structural break. Value's dead. This time is different. Something didn't work. But lo and behold, for the next six consecutive years, value outperformed very, very handsomely. And I think nothing is a free lunch. One of the reasons that you get paid to have value in your portfolio to expose yourself to that factor is this cyclicality. So we feel strongly that it's cyclical, not structural. To forecast into the future is always dangerous, but I think there's a few things that you can look at today that gives a lot of credence to value as a play for the next few years. One of them 
and it's talked about frequently, is just the multiples at which value stocks are trading. We're at, in the large cap space, depending on the day, three or four standard deviation territory in terms of the historical multiples. We've got value stocks trading at half a book value in some cases. And I know to your point, that's not always the best metric. And the small cap space, it's, it's even more dislocated. You're at four or five standard deviations for value stocks. So that gives some, um, I think, credence to value going forward. Also the macroeconomic view. We've known for a long time that value tends to be at its best during times of economic recession and then the subsequent recoveries. We've been in a prolonged period of growth for 10 years now. It's not surprising necessarily then that value has underperformed during this period because that's exactly what we have seen play out over the past 50 plus years in the market. We only have data really going back that far. So from a valuation perspective, as well as from a macro perspective, a lot of our institutional clients are looking at the value factor and saying, hey, this is probably a pretty good time to get in. Now, nobody has a crystal ball, obviously, but when you think about most asset allocation decisions, they tend to be on the macro theme and the multiple evaluation theme, doing the same thing here. I think the stage really is set for value to do quite well. Will it be next week, next month, a year from now? I don't know, but I think we're going to start earning that risk premium very soon. When we talk about institutional allocators starting to make perhaps a tactical tilt towards value, I have to imagine that they're probably sizing in terms of active risk budget. Do you have a sort of a sense as to how they're thinking about stepping into the trade and the size of the tilt they're looking to make? It really depends. We see things that span the spectrum from a fairly minor tilt toward value in connection with maybe some other factor exposures to some pretty substantial deep value exposures from some of our clients who's putting a lot of their asset base behind it. So it spans the spectrum. I think the best recommendation that I could make is value, yes. Diversification, absolutely. That value, I think, is a long-term compensated factor, but it works very well in connection with others like quality, low volatility, et cetera. I think your best play right now is a well-diversified suite of factors that includes value. Working our way backwards up the list of things you mentioned, this idea of institutions de-risking equities using factors today, which a bit of a non-traditional approach to thinking about de-risking. But in a recent institutional investor interview, you discussed what seems to be an increasing frequency of market shocks. Why do you think this is occurring and what does it ultimately mean for factor investors? Yeah, it's a great question. Maybe before we get into the answer, let me define a market shock and what I mean by that. So a market shock is a big spike in volatility. Maybe we'll define that as a a move in the VIX index of five points or more. I'm just making this up, but let's let's use that criteria. But if we use that criteria, uh, five-point daily move in the VIX, when I look at the 10 years prior to the global financial crisis, there were only five days out of those 10 years in which the VIX spiked more than five points. Okay, so pretty rare. Since the global financial crisis, there have been 56 of these volatility shocks. Seven of them have occurred in the last couple of months. What we can see by this is that 
the volatility dynamic of the equity market is changing materially. It's not necessarily the level of the volatility that's changing. What is changing is the skewness or that third moment of the distribution, meaning that when drawdowns occur, they tend to be more severe than they have been in the past. Now, typically in a volatility spike, there's a significant drawdown followed by also a significant rebound. And we're seeing more and more evidence of this kind of activity. This is important because this means there is more tail risk in the equity portfolio as a result of it. So what's driving that to your question? There's a number of things I think that are driving this. Over the last few months, certainly coronavirus, obviously, rising recession probabilities associated with coronavirus, but it's bigger than that. One of the considerations that I think is significant is globally, from a central bank perspective, we have a very low interest rate, even a negative interest rate policy for many countries. This has increased the level of leverage that we see in the economy. And you can almost trace it. If you look at the graphs, there is a commensurate increase in volatility spikes related to the level of leverage that we see in the, in the global economy. So that's another consideration. A third and very important one as well is that, as everyone knows, today trading is computer dominated. And you have a lot more, and I was formerly an algorithmic trader myself, you have a lot more algos that are doing things like volatility selling or trying to capitalize on the difference between realized and implied volatility. Uh, whatever form it comes, many of these algos have these natural off switches. So if a spike occurs or a shock occurs in the market, liquidity tends to dry up, exacerbating a lot of these drawdowns. When it rebounds or when it goes back, those off switches turn back to on and that helps to float the rebound, if you will. So I think some of the tail risk absolutely tied to the way the microstructure of the market sits today. It's important because, as you know, I think I mentioned this already, when you look at the asset allocation of a portfolio, even though maybe 60% of your assets are in equity, virtually 100% of your tail risk is in equity. If from a just a risk perspective, 80 to 90% of your total risk is in equity. So 60% of your assets, 80 to 90% of your risk, 100% of your tail risk, if that's becoming more pronounced, that's something we have to deal with. And factors like quality and low volatility are ideally suited for this in that they can cut the tail risk but not operate purely as low beta, meaning that you're going to cut the return when the market rebounds. So you can craft an asymmetric beta profile with the right combination of quality and low volatility. So protect on the downside, participate in the upside. So to that point, you actually recently authored a paper on the low volatility anomaly where your claim was that the outperformance of that anomaly is really inherently dependent on this beta asymmetry that you're talking about, less downside capture, more upside capture. And that intrinsically made it linked to volatility of volatility in the markets. I was hoping you could elaborate on some of the findings in the paper and again, what those implications are for low vol investors going forward. Predicated on that finding is the reality that the asymmetry of volatility in the market is increasing as well. As I pointed out, there's more downside risk today than there is upside risk. And that ratio 
has changed materially through time for all the reasons that we, we have pointed out. So if you can create a strategy that, again, protects on the downside but participates in the upside, you can capitalize on this asymmetry through almost what I would call a ratchet effect. So the market goes down, your portfolio certainly goes down some, but not as much as the market. When it rebounds, you participate as much as you can on the upside. That ratchet effect, if you will, can add significant excess returns through time while cutting your risk. The general idea is pretty straightforward, is that when the market draws down in a volatility event and a volatility spike, the market's going down, but the dispersion of individual stocks, performance of individual stocks tends to be fairly wide, meaning that if the market's down 10%, some stocks are down 20%, some stocks are down 2%. You take your pick. And during that period, because the dispersion is wide and because the market's trending down, there tends to be this natural flight to quality, low volatility securities. Okay, So if you're holding those stocks when this event occurs, you tend to go down less, kind of makes sense. But what most people don't realize is that when that rebound occurs, and again, a lot of this rebound is due to the trigger effects from the algos and things that we talked about. When the rebound occurs, the, the dispersion in individual security performance is actually quite narrow, much narrower than coming into that drawdown. So as a result, because dispersion is low, those same securities that protected you on the downside tend to participate in most of the upside because it's all beta risk at that point. So if you have this proper combination of quality and low volatility going into these spikes, going into these asymmetric volatility events, you can actually create a strategy with an asymmetric beta profile. And again, this is kind of the holy grail where you have your cake and you eat it too. You protect on the downside, get rid of your tail risk, but you can also outperform the benchmark. And I think one of the biggest misconceptions about low volatility investing is that it has to be low beta. Low beta means that I underperform when the market's going up. Well, over the last five years, since we've had these strategies live, the market has been up about 60 or 70%, depending on which benchmark, but they still outperform significantly because of this asymmetric beta, not because it's low beta. And that's what the market's really looking for today is that asymmetry in beta profile that feeds off that asymmetry and volatility. It almost sounds like if you were to sort of isolate that asymmetry, go long a basket of low vol, high quality stocks, short the market, you could almost create the perfect hedge, right? Some sort of zero carry tail hedge, which I'm hard pressed to believe exists. In your perspective, what are the scenarios whereby this sort of strategy might not deliver? And I, and I personally look sort of towards March, where I think a lot of low vol investors were perhaps somewhat disappointed by the performance that they saw in their strategies. How do you think about sort of couching this asymmetry of, okay, these are the types of environments where it might not play out? Yeah, so two considerations there. One is to your direct question, when will this kind of strategy underperform? It tends to underperform in what I'll call a classic junk rally. So you have risk on scenarios where the junkier end of the spectrum tends to accelerate faster than the higher quality end of the spectrum. Those are the periods in which this kind of strategy can and will underperform. 2017 is a great example of that. Significant junk rally in the market, underperformed slightly in 2019 
but the market was up 31%, at least in the US. So when you have very high double digit returns in the market, that tends to be sort of associated with this sort of junk rally. That's when the strategy can underperform. But our expectation going forward is we're not going to see too many years over the next five or 10 years where we're back at that 20 or 30% return in the market. Our expectation is more on the mid single digits punctuated by all these volatility spikes. So I think the best is yet to come for a strategy like this. Now, I must address your other point, though, that in March, it's true that many low volatility strategies did disappoint. But I would contend that that disappointment came not from the low volatility factor, but from the construction of the strategy itself. One of the big issues with low volatility strategies is that many of them, if they're not carefully constructed, take very significant sector and region biases. And those sector and region biases for a lot of the strategies in March just didn't hold up. They didn't pay off. They actually caused them to underperform. So there was very wide dispersion in the performance of individual low volatility strategies in March. Those that had more of a risk control, didn't take so much of an overweight to the defensive sectors, tended to do a lot better. Well, you just teed me up perfectly. I don't know whether it was intentional (laughs) for, for my next question, if you read my mind. In one institutional investor article I found, you were quoted as saying, I believe in factors, but the implementation is horrid throughout the industry. Pretty strong words there, Mike. But talk to me about where do most factor implementations go wrong? Yeah, and I'll be happy to say it again, the the implementations truly are horrid. So the challenge is, and this is really not something I think is well appreciated, is the challenge is anytime you tilt toward a factor, and it doesn't matter which factor it is, if it's low vol or quality or value, if you're not exceptionally careful about what you're doing, you can take a lot of unintended bets, unintended risks that are not necessarily associated with the factor that you want. So one example might be low volatility, since we're talking about it. I tilt my portfolio to lower volatility stocks. Again, if I'm not careful, I'm concentrated in the defensive sectors like REITs and utilities, consumer staples. I may have be buying stocks that are somewhat larger than the benchmark on average. I might have a size bias. These same stocks, uh, especially today, can be more expensive than the benchmarks that can have a negative value bias associated with my portfolio, meaning that I think I'm getting low vol, but in conjunction with a little bit of low vol exposure, I'm getting a lot of sector bets, unintended style factor bets, maybe even some idiosyncratic bets that are seeping into the portfolio. And it's those unintended biases often unknown to most of the investors in the strategy that are really driving the performance of the strategy. Let me give you a sense for how bad this problem really is. So a few years ago, a colleague and I published a paper on this, and we assessed at the time of the 20 most popular largest factor-based strategies globally, how much of that active risk that they were taking came from the advertised factor. So if it was a value strategy or low ball or whatever, versus all these unintended bets, be it sectors or regions or countries or style factors. And it was absolutely frightening. Just 17% of the total active risk of these factor strategies came from the advertised factor exposure. 
83% coming from unintended sources. And the issue is, number one, you don't necessarily know what these sources are by reading the description of the strategy. But even worse, we find that in our research, as well as pretty much the consensus of all the academic research on this topic, these bets, when you're a factor investor, making biases towards sectors or regions, idiosyncratic risk, are uncompensated at best, negatively compensated at worst. So I'll give you another example that maybe rings true even more today. If you're a naive value investor, today, a lot of those value stocks potentially could be in financials and energy, right? Energy sectors. So when you think about it from a risk perspective, you're getting value exposure perhaps, but those sectors are significantly correlated with interest rates and commodity prices. So you think you're buying a value portfolio, turns out your value portfolio has a lot of duration associated with it, has a lot of commodity price risk. These are risks that are uncompensated. You have to get rid of. So when I say that implementation is horrid, this is the kind of thing that I mean. You bought a value strategy. You didn't know you're getting a whole slug of commodity price exposure. A lot of unhappy factor investors as a result of that. So I believe you're talking about your paper about the factor efficiency ratio, which I was going to ask some questions about later. So I'll just dive into it now. That's yeah, sure thing. So in that paper, as you mentioned, you measure efficiency as active risk coming from whatever target factor you're looking at divided by the total active risk of the portfolio. And one of the things that struck me was that I think you could potentially purposefully construct a portfolio that has very, very high factor efficiency, but very, very low total factor exposure, right? You might just have a little smidge of value in there, but it's really pure value. And so I would actually probably contend, and I haven't done the work, I would contend it's probably easier to do that, right? That the less total factor exposure you have, the easier it is to make pure. What is the balance in your mind between being able to achieve enough factor exposure that it's meaningful, but still having the capacity to keep it pure enough that it's not introducing all these unintended bets? Yeah, it's a great question. And the trick is to kind of find the sweet spot meaning that I want enough factor exposure to do the job, to meet the objectives of the portfolio. So if there's a, let's say 150 basis point excess return objective to the portfolio, well, I need enough factor content to achieve that. But for whatever the objective is, I want to have as an efficient implementation as possible. So I wanna achieve my, my excess return target but take the minimum amount of active risk to get there. And I think that's not at all, as of yet, a best practice in the industry. There's a lot of these strategies that are very inefficient, meaning for that same level of factor content, they take two or three times the active risk, but that active risk is completely unnecessary. So I guess goal number one is to meet your objectives. But in the course of meeting those objectives, you want to have as an efficient of implementation as possible. So speaking about efficient implementations, I want to move on to the next item of your list of trends among institutional investors talking about going from single factor to multi-factor. And again, I'm going to, I'm going to use your words against you here. You published an article in Pensions and Investments where you wrote, quote, 
Some providers appear to have simply cobbled together existing single-factor products in various combinations to create new suites of multi-factor strategies. We believe many of these hastily developed products suffer from the effects of dilution or the unintentional offsetting of individual factor exposures. And I know that this is a point that has been in high debate within the industry. Firms such as your own, AQR, Research Affiliates, Goldman Sachs, all coming down on different sides of this argument as to whether it is better to take a more integrated approach or whether it's better to take this sort of mixed sleeve-based approach. And one of the core arguments that I've heard for the sleeve-based approach is that while you might be foregoing a little bit of factor purity, you are benefiting from diversification. And the argument against sort of the integrated approach is there is foregone diversification opportunities there. How do you think about balancing that problem? Again, going for the purity versus this risk of foregone diversification. Yeah. And I think the it's a question of between what's theoretically possible versus what's actually available in the market. So what you've said about the sleeved approach, or we sometimes refer to it as a top-down implementation, that actually can be true. If you're very diligent about constructing the individual sleeves, then you can achieve the outcome that you're talking about. So well-diversified potent factor exposure. But the reality is very, very few of these sleeved implementations are efficient. So let me give you an example. In a classic kind of example is that you may have, let's say you have value and quality in your portfolio. And if you take a sleeved approach, you have a portion of your allocation in the value sleeve, a portion of your allocation in the quality sleeve. Well, the reality often is the case that your value sleeve, yes, it contains cheaper stocks, But if that portfolio is not well constructed, those same cheaper stocks can be of low quality. While your quality sleeve absolutely has a higher quality exposure, if you're not careful, those same high quality stocks can be relatively expensive. So you have value with low quality, quality with low value sitting side by side. They tend to cancel out that factor exposure. And this, I would say, if I'm going to be really an agitator here, is a rule almost a rule rather than an exception. And we've written a couple of papers about this dilution phenomenon. Let me give you one example that we've run into very frequently on both retail and the institutional side of things is there are certain providers out there that offer their factor exposures in single factor exposures in ETF form. And it's not at all uncommon for us to see clients that have let's say a 20% notional allocation to each of five single factor ETFs. So quality, size, value, low vol, momentum. Well, when you take the collection of those five ETFs together, all five factors, and you analyze the factor content of the aggregate of the net, you get exactly zero factor exposure to all five factors because your quality is diluted, your value, value diluted, quality, it's diluted your low volatility, so on and so forth. So while conceptually, Corey, I agree with you that in principle, it should be doable to have a sleeved implementation. It's very challenging to do because what you need to design are individual sleeves that don't have any other negative factor exposure associated with them. It's possible. We've done it in the past, but that's very, very rare. And just to give you one anecdote, In a Northern Trust, we're one of the largest passive 
equity providers in the world. So we do manage third party single factor sleeves on behalf of our clients. Let's say six, seven years ago, we probably had about $15 billion in those types of strategies, single factor sleeve implementations used by institutional clients. Today, we have exactly zero. And most of that has moved to the bottom up implementation because that dilution issue is such a hard thing to control. So one of the problems I've really personally found in my own research with the bottom up approach is that you have these different factors whose signals decay at different speeds and it can make the construction really difficult. So just as an example of two extremes, you've got value, which tends to be a very slow moving signal. And then you've got momentum, which is a very fast moving signal. And so it, it sort of creates, at least from what I've seen, two potential problems. One, you have to rebalance your portfolio at the frequency of your fastest decaying signal. And two, that, that fastest decaying signal tends to have an outsized influence on the stocks that are entering and exiting the portfolio. So I would love to know, how do you address this problem? This is a great question. And no one ever asked me this question. So I'm very glad I'm really, really glad that you did because this is very important. It gets a little nuanced, but it truly is critical to the success. You're right. Momentum is a much faster moving signal than value. This is why it is absolutely critical that when you combine factors together, you design those factors to decay at approximately the same rate. So what we do in a value portfolio, recognizing that value is a relatively slow moving factor, is we will pair it with momentum, but not the typical kind of momentum that you might think. We're not trying to accentuate the highest momentum stocks in the universe. What we're instead trying to do is eliminate the worst of the worst, the most negative momentum securities. We find by doing this, we can get a lot of the return benefit, but slow down that signal fairly significantly. If you're negative momentum, you tend to stay negative momentum. If you're positive momentum, you don't necessarily stay positive momentum. So by focusing on a different part of the distribution, and this is really key, focusing on a different part of the distribution, you can pick where your decay, it's not all uniform across the distribution. So you need to absolutely match those two together. And to your point, way too often we see that if you, and this happens also in a a sleeved approach, as we just discussed. You may have your value moving at a three-year cycle and your momentum moving at a two-month cycle, and you need to trade on that higher frequency cycle. But by appropriately choosing where you're at in that distribution of any factor, and there's a big difference in the decay rate versus accentuating the best of the best versus eliminating the worst of the worst, and that's true across all factors, you can craft your portfolio to match those decay rates much better. Some factors have fairly standard definitions among providers and others like quality, for example, always seems to be the one that comes to mind for me, seem to have a really wide dispersion in their definition. How fungible are these factor definitions in practice? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. The short answer is they're not fungible in that broadly speaking, there's sort of two schools of thought on how to define a factor. One school of thought, and I think you brought it up already, is to utilize whatever factor definition has been introduced into the academic literature. So if Fama and French in 1993 
say book to market or price to book ratios, your value metric, just utilize that. Or Mark Carhart 97 says 12 minus one is your momentum factor. Utilize that in practice. The challenge is that academic research is wonderful for pointing out the existence of a factor, but in no way, shape or form does it tell you how to extract the factor premia in the best possible manner. So Fama and French introduced size and value, A plus. Would I have Fama and French be my small cap value portfolio manager? Absolutely not. There's more nuance to it, meaning that as a portfolio manager, someone who is actually wedded to the returns on a day-by-day basis, there's a lot of other things you have to think about. Not the least of which is using one metric doesn't allow you any diversification. We believe in a multi-dimensional approach, meaning that you use a variety of metrics to gauge value, to gauge quality, to gauge volatility. You know, keep in mind, factors, they're strictly unobservable. They're theoretic. We try to proxy them through our definitions. We don't even really know what they are. We're just giving them names, right? So taking a triangulation approach is critical. The other critical consideration is that when I gauge quality or I gauge value or even momentum or volatility, I can't use that same definition across all sectors or across all regions. And even Fama and French excluded financials from their analysis because they couldn't make it work. You simply can't judge the quality of a REIT using the same criteria as a commercial bank. If you do that, if you attempt to do that, that becomes a very apples and oranges kind of comparison. And, and that's frequently done, but that doesn't get you the best results, but in any way, shape or form. Another consideration is a lot of times the choice of the definition of the factor will lead to sector and region biases in their own right. So if I take return on equity as a proxy for quality and I rank all stocks in any universe on ROE, you have a natural concentration at the very top in just a few sectors and regions and the same thing at the bottom. So you go to implement that in your portfolio, you're immediately taking active risk simply because of the factor definition. And again, I think if there's one consensus in the academic literature, and we have contributed to this as well, is that these unintended bets, sector and region bets in particular, when you're a factor investor, they're uncompensated. They add to active risk, but they don't necessarily add to active return. If they do add to active return, it's just a little tiny bit, but the risk can be very, very high. Well, my listeners and readers of my research will know that that is one of my primary focuses. I have an obsession with those unintended bets, particularly on the rebalance timing side. So you definitely, you're preaching to the choir here. I want to drill in on a point you mentioned, which was this idea you can't use the same metrics within different sectors, industry groups, that sort of thing. It's always struck me that if you take that to an extreme, you sort of just end up being a discretionary analyst again saying, well, I can't use the same metric for Coca-Cola and Pepsi necessarily. They're different companies, right? Where does the balance again come in with recognizing, I know that my factors, my characteristics, whatever I'm using are wrong, but I have enough diversification that I think it's directionally correct on the basket that I'm applying it to. How far down the ladder should we go? Not too far down. Keep in mind that All factors, and don't let anybody tell you otherwise, all factors have a very low signal-to-noise ratio. And 
by being sort of sector specific in your definition of a factor, all you're really trying to do is get a little bit more signal in a sea of noise. So do we go down to the security level? Absolutely not, because we know that even in our best day, if we're right 55% of the time, we're probably really, really lucky. So being a factor investor, being a quant investor means that you have to have a big base of stocks to work from. You apply signals, again, low signal to noise ratio, and you do your best to try to manage that. If you were more granular, any more granular than what I'm kind of discussing, you start to introduce not only type two errors in your empirical process potentially, but you can be getting away from actually increasing that signal to noise ratio. So again, it's about the sweet spot. And I think that's what people have a hard time understanding about quant investing in general is that quant investing is about, it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. And that's something we have to kind of learn about quant as opposed to a fundamental approach where you have lots and lots of conviction and a small number of securities. This is a very different kind of thing that we're trying to do. So I want to return to, again, these trends among institutional investors and the factor space. The very first one you mentioned was this idea of institutions using factors to help manage concentration risk, which I know is a topic that is uh, front of mind for a lot of people nowadays with the amount of capital concentrated at the top of the market cap in just a few names, these, these FANG names, which has continued to work very well for folks who have been invested in them, but I know is perhaps making a number of people lose a little bit of sleep. Can you talk to me about how institutional allocators are thinking about solving this problem? Yeah, so there's two concerns here, one of which is, are those stocks at the top fairly priced? And let's put that aside for a second. Whether they are or whether they're not, they still have a significant amount of risk associated with them. So one concern is just that there's a big glut of risk in a small number of names. So to help move away from that, factor strategies classically have tended to underweight the top end of the spectrum. They tend to get their active risk budget from an underweight to those mega caps. That's why most factor strategies have some kind of size, and I'm using size in air quotes here because that could mean a mid cap exposure, but some kind of size exposure associated with them because they tend to deviate somewhat from the mega caps, accentuate the smaller end of the spectrum. So that is one way to kind of diversify away from the largest end of the spectrum putting more emphasis on the factors that constitute the smaller end of the spectrum. So that's one consideration is just purely from a risk perspective. The other consideration is going back to our first point, are they fairly priced? And there's divergent views on this, but one thing that we do know for sure is that when you look at the price of these FANG stocks today, a very large portion of their current price not justified by current earnings, but essentially is discounted future growth expectations. So large amounts of discounted future growth, very large amounts of discounted future growth inherent in their current price. The potential challenge to that is if we enter a significant recession, which we certainly may, uh, there may be problems in realizing that level of growth. Amazon, for example, to realize its current stock price needs to grow to something like 20% of US GDP in terms of sales over the next few years. Is this realistic? Well, you tell me. 
But a lot of our clients are looking at that level of discounted growth at the top end of the spectrum and saying that represents probably more risk to the downside than it does to the upside. We want to use factor strategies to distance ourselves from that to a degree. One of the things I found really interesting from, again, my own research, one of the things I track is I look at averages of different ETF baskets that are out there. So a large number of ETFs that might represent value. And I look at their average holdings. And what I do is I calculate their implied active bets. I take their average holdings and subtract out the market cap weights. I do that for value, size, momentum, quality. And one of the really interesting phenomenons I've noticed is that almost none of the fangs show up in any of the factors today. And none of them have showed up in any of the factors since I started tracking this probably a year ago, unless you include growth as a factor, which I think is an interesting phenomenon. So does that tell you anything? I mean, are they just unattractive from every dimension? And therefore, it's almost the anti-factor play when you buy FANG? Well, it's absolutely true that they tend not to have significant exposures to any of the factors. They're not of higher quality. They're not of lower volatility. They're certainly not cheap. So is it the anti-factor? Well, no, it's not in the sense that I think what propels a lot of the fangs is not a systematic exposure. And keep in mind, when we talk about factor investing, we're talking about exposure to systematic factors meaning I'm exposed to factors and not necessarily stocks per se, where the fangs are very idiosyncratic. Yes, they happen to be largely in the same kind of internet retail dimension, but not every internet retail stock has the same level of success of the fangs. So I think the challenge is separating the systematic component of the fangs from the idiosyncratic component of the fangs. And I think the reality is there's, as there has been in the past, a small number of stocks that have great idiosyncratic returns associated with them. And you're never going to catch that in any systematic factor implementation. But the reality and what we're looking at the long term, while that idiosyncratic component can be, I'm sorry, over the short term, while that idiosyncratic component can be very significant, over the long term, it tends to be a wash, even a drag in many cases on performance. So we are long-term investors. Yeah, absolutely. Over the short term, there can be a handful of stocks that really rip and make your factor models look unrealistic. But that's your horizon. I think there's a significant horizon issue associated with factor investing. It's not a short term thing. It's a very long term play. That's why most of our clients, 99% of our clients utilize our strategies as a core allocation. It's a buy and hold allocation. Now, one of the trends I did not hear you say anything about which if I listen to the financial media at all, I would believe that it is like the number one trend among institutional allocators is the concept of ESG. So really, this is going to be a twofold question. The first is, are you seeing an interest in adoption in ESG? And then second, as a quant, do you believe that ESG should be considered its own factor? Great question. On the first point, absolutely. We are seeing a tremendous growth in ESG investing. Virtually everything we do on the factor side has some ESG or SRI consideration associated with it today. So absolutely seeing growth. And it's not just internationally, it's in the U.S. as well. In fact, one of our fastest growing strategies on the quant side is an ESG strategy. It's sold primarily in the U.S. So interest globally. Is it a factor? 
This is a great question. And there's a couple of things that we have to consider in the course of answering this question. So I'll give you the answer. It's going to be a little cagey. My answer is that it might be. But before we draw that conclusion, what we cannot do is simply go and look at ESG benchmarks relative to a CAC-weighted benchmark and make a conclusion on the return implications of ESG. That's absolutely the wrong thing to do. Because like any other portfolio, when you tilt toward ESG stocks, whether you know it or not, you are taking very significant bets on other sources of risk. And countries and sectors certainly apply here as well. So if you have a global ESG portfolio, let's just say hypothetically, it's very, very likely that you have a systematic underweight to the U.S. because most of the higher ESG ranked stocks are outside of the U.S. So that underweight to the U.S. would have been a drag on performance in its own right, independent of ESG. You would have also likely had an overweight to financials. Financial stocks tend to carry naturally higher ESG rankings than industrials or utilities, etc. That also would have likely been a drag on the performance of your portfolio. So immediately when you say I have this ESG portfolio, you have entangled with it potentially some sector biases, country and region biases that absolutely are influencing the performance of ESG. When you take those out, the case for ESG as a compensated factor improves significantly. Also, when you take classic factors into consideration, ESG stocks tend to be larger, they tend to be more expensive, and believe it or not, not all ESG stocks are of high quality. You actually have a pretty good cross-section of highly ranked ESG stocks that are of low quality. For example, in the past, you've had some solar companies, solar energy companies that great from an ESG perspective, almost no profitability, declining revenues. From a financial perspective, you'd never want to own them. Once you clear all that up, clear up your sector biases, your country biases, your size exposure, and very, very importantly, that quality exposure. When I meld the idea of ESG with quality or some sort of financial metrics, then yes, we see that ESG can be a very highly compensated factor. And our strategies that include ESG almost universally include quality as well as all these risk controls for this reason. And they've been doing very, very well and been doing very well relative to cap-weighted benchmarks. So is ESG a factor? It absolutely can be, as long as you clean up all the junk that tends to come along with ESG. But if you do that, then I have a very strong conviction that going forward, there's going to be a higher return potential. And what is the, the fundamental thesis behind why ESG would be a compensated factor? Part of it is that for a company to comply with ESG regulations, it can be very, very costly. So those firms that have already done so have borne that cost out already. Those firms that have not done so are lower on the ESG ranking spectrum will have to do that at some point in the future. That cost that they incur could potentially be a significant headwind to their stock price, not just in compliance, but potentially getting into completely different lines of business, moving away from lines of business that have been profitable in the past. That will be very costly in the future. Those stocks that have lower ESG rankings can potentially underperform as a result of those, those costs. 
want to keep picking your brain about the practical nature of actually investing in factors. I find that there's a lot of academic interest and obviously a lot of academic literature supporting factors, but the actual ability to implement these portfolios is highly limited. So for example, a lot of academic research focuses on very naive sort of quintile sorts of long short portfolios, but there are inherent limitations in translating that into a long only strategy. I would love to know in your experience as you have read through the backlog of academic literature, how much of it is really applicable for long-only factor investors? Well, let me just start by saying that I'm not sure academic research really supports directly the long-only or the long-short in that I have a big problem with the way that academic research is done in general in the classic context. So what you really need to do to understand factors, whether you're doing it long only or long short, is look at the full distribution of the returns associated with those factors. But the reality is that academic research in factors utilizes primarily one and only one tool, these cross-sectional Fondland-Beth regressions that focus very heavily on T-statistics. So if you if your T-stat is higher than two, grossly speaking, then you got something significant. Well, all that is is a view of the first two moments of the distribution. It's return divided by the standard error, standard deviation. That doesn't tell you anything about the tails of your distribution. It doesn't tell you anything about the kurtosis of your distribution. Those are critical decisions, whether you're long, short, or long only. So one of the big criticisms I have of academic research and factors is it's not taking the full distribution into account. It's too long term in that over a 40 year horizon or 40 year period, you're doing your testing. Yeah, sure. You may get this positive T stat, but in one particular month, in one particular year, that tail event could have been so severe that you got crushed and you got out of the strategy and nothing else really mattered. So as a portfolio manager, you are very, very cognizant of the higher moments of the distribution. So to your question though, does it help the rationale or the story for a long only implementation? I, I absolutely think that it can, because keep in mind that even though you're long only, you are overweighting and underweighting certain stocks. And so it's not exactly long short, but you get somewhat of the same effect as a result. It's muted, definitely. But even though it's muted, typically in most of our clients' portfolios, because it's spread over the core equity allocation, it's thinner but wider, if that makes sense. So you can get as much factor potency or factor content in a long-only implementation that's spread over a wider base of assets than you can in a long-short implementation that admittedly is very potent, but typically comes associated with a very high degree of leverage which tends to sort of exacerbate that volatility profile. Well, to your point, long only implementations are just your benchmark plus a long short overlaid on top. Absolutely. So there is that natural connection. I guess one of the things I've always thought about that makes perhaps the long only more difficult is that long short is inherently constrained to how much you have of that stock in a benchmark. So by that, what I mean is it's very easy to go very underweight Apple under Armour, on the other hand, which is maybe 50 basis points of the S&P, well, you can only underweight that so much, or maybe five basis points of the S&P. 
how does that come into play, right? That you are inherently limited in the amount of underweight you can create for certain securities. So two things there again, this really speaks to the whole idea that you have to understand where in the distribution your return is coming from. So in a long short implementation, you have the benefit of both the long and the short side. In a long only, to your point, you have primarily the benefit of the long side. So if most of the return of a factor comes from the short side and you try to implement that in long only, well, you're, it's over before it starts. So this is why that you have to craft or under, you have to understand the full distribution of returns for any factors and craft the definition to be commensurate with the application. So if I'm trying to go after that long side, well, I don't want to employ a factor that most of the return is on that short side. So that's sort of the first statement. But to your question, to your point, it is true that the only raw material that you have for overweighting a stock is what you can underweight somewhere else in the portfolio. And the mega caps tend to be the, as we talked about earlier, the area in which you get your underweights from or source your raw material for your overweights. This isn't necessarily bad in the context that a lot of our portfolios are designed to be beta one anyway, that a complete underweight to the mega caps would deviate your beta so much from the benchmark that you'd have a really hard time meeting that beta one objective. And that's a very important objective for a lot of our clients. So to be beta one to the benchmark necessitates frequently that you have to have some exposure to these mega caps. So if 10 stocks make up 26% of the S&P 500 in any beta one portfolio, you probably have some allocation to those 10 stocks. So it's not as much of a limitation as you might expect because you have that additional beta constraint on that portfolio. I want to spend the last two questions talking about the future. Factors, as I mentioned early on, really, at least on the retail side, got quite mainstream around 2012, 2013. But I would argue, and again, really focus on the retail side, retail packaging here, that they've largely stagnated in implementation and that there hasn't really been a lot of evolution in the space. As you look forward, what does the future of factor investing look like? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not 100% sure that it's stagnated and that we have seen some innovation. We talked before about the move from the sleeve or the top down more toward the bottom up. That certainly has been one. There are a lot of strategies that are stuck in the past, I will admit that. But going forward, people always ask me, are there additional factors out there that we're going to discover? Maybe, but I wouldn't necessarily bet on that. What I am 100% sure about is the definition that we utilize today to quantify a factor may be quite different five years or 10 years from now. So I always say that factors are a fluid concept. Value is a great example of this, that we already said in 1993, if I'm a French, use book to market, price to book ratios to quantify value. Today, the whole concept of book value doesn't mean the same thing that it did in 1993. Uh, we're moving from an asset heavy to an asset light kind of economy. Our valuation metrics have to adjust to that transition as well. We have very different accounting rules in place today than we did 10 or 20 years ago, our factor definitions have to adjust for that. For example, we have operating leases coming on balance sheets globally, something on the order of $3 trillion in operating leases. So all this off-balance sheet financing activity coming onto balance sheets 
now messing up our view of interest rate sensitivity of those balance sheets, all kinds of other things as well. So there's these innovations that occur and a number of them occur every year that we have to be cognizant of. So as better data becomes available, you're going to see some of these factors evolve in terms of their definition. So that's one consideration. Another consideration, I think this is very important, is that today, especially in the retail space, factors are primarily employed as a means to beat a cap-weighted benchmark, to outperform a benchmark. I'm not convinced that that's the highest and best use of factors. Certainly an application, no question. But if you go back to the original research on factors, it's really from stems from an asset allocation decision, meaning that it's not about fulfilling your equity bucket with a multi-factor strategy. And that's great. Believe me, I, I would advocate for that. But if you can break apart your portfolio into the key drivers of risk and return being factors and allocate to the factors rather than allocating to asset classes, which are nothing but a combination of these factors, you get a much better result. And we're seeing some of our forward-thinking clients, typically more on the larger end of the spectrum, but doing this kind of work, meaning that they're employing factors more in the asset allocation decision than just purely in the fulfillment decision. A lot more to come on that front. And then last but certainly not least is this ESG factor synthesis. We're only starting down this path. I believe that these two ideas really can go hand in hand in that both can be implemented quantitatively. Both are implemented in, call it a similar scoring methodology. Both suffer from the problems that we've talked about for the last hour in unintended bets, portfolio construction. So we can bring these two ideas together and produce some really cool stuff. So I think that it's just the beginning over the next several years, we're going to see a lot more innovation on the factor ESG synthesis front. And last question for you, Michael, as I record these episodes, everyone I'm speaking to, we're all in varying degrees of sheltering at home. It's been a tumultuous 2020 so far. What are you looking forward to in the future? I'm looking forward to getting back out and sitting in front of my clients. Before the, the shelter in place, I spent about half of my time on the road and I cover the whole world. So we have clients in Asia and the Middle East, Europe, Australia. I put on about at least 300,000 miles a year, if not a lot more than that. So I like talking to clients face to face. We do the videos. That's great. The video conferencing, chats, whatever. That's great. But actually sitting in front of them in their office, kind of learning what their problems are is what I miss the most. In the meantime, we can do a lot of really cool research because we have a lot of time on our hands and that's great. But I like to see the actual implementation, the usage of our strategies too. Well, I can't thank you enough for joining me. It has been incredibly educational, both to hear about the trends as well as have the opportunity to dive into the deep factor research with you. So thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Corey. It's been great.